This podcast series is brought to you by Net Zero, a food upcycler providing technology to feed the world better food with less resources. Doing their part to reduce, recover, and reharvest food waste. You can find out more at netzro.us. And by the Upcycled Food Association, building a food system in which all food reaches its highest and best use. To learn more about becoming a member or to support the UFA by making a charitable donation, visit upcycledfood.org. The learnings that you get from selling something in person, not over you know, digital marketing or, or um, any type of automated process, just actually talking to someone one-on-one and convincing them to buy it. There's no better way to get to know a business model and to really reinforce your passion for something. Too good to waste. Too good to waste. Way too good to waste. Too good to waste. Absolutely. Hi, and welcome to the podcast series, Too Good to Waste. I'm your host, Kevin May, and together we're going on an adventure to explore some of the fun and creative and innovative ways that lots of people are doing their part to help find a higher value in unused food and food byproducts that might otherwise be wasted. So thanks for joining me. Let's go see if we can find out about some of these things that are too good to waste. Well, hey, so here we are in July, and how many of you have your own little home gardens growing, whether it's a container garden or maybe you have enough room in your backyard and you're growing some stuff? We do, and I'm excited about it because the stuff is just flourishing. And, you know, if you do grow your own gardens, how many of you can relate to this? Have you ever pulled a carrot out of the ground or maybe a tomato off the vine or a pepper or something that was a little misshapen, didn't look like the typical tomato or carrot, look kind of odd, kind of funny looking. Maybe you made a funny character out of it and took a picture and put it on your Instagram. Who knows? But at the end of the day, it still tastes great. It's delicious. It's uh, nutritious. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It just, like we said, it looked a little odd. Well, that happens all the time. But unfortunately, on a larger scale in these big farm fields, Often it never makes it either off the field or it certainly doesn't make it to the grocery stores or the co-ops because they have certain standards, of course, that they have to uphold. And so then this stuff doesn't have a home. Well, today my guest is Wes Hopkins. He's the chief of staff at a company called Imperfect Foods. They have come up with a solution for that. They are a company that offers imperfect yet delicious produce, affordable pantry items, and quality meat and dairy, and it's all put in a box and delivered directly to your door. Wes is also a founding board member of the Upcycled Food Association, and today we're going to talk with Wes about Imperfect Foods, find out a little bit about how they got started, what they do, and how they're solving some really big problems and providing such a great service. Wes, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. It's nice to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Right out of the gate, I'm looking at the mission of Imperfect Foods on your website, and it is a bold statement. Eliminate food waste and build a better food system for everyone. So starting with that, tell us a little bit, give us an introduction to Imperfect Foods and what you all do and how you accomplish that mission through what you're doing. Absolutely. So at Imperfect Foods, we try to make the best of all of the food that's grown in the United States. So uh, we started off primarily with Imperfect Produce, and that actually used to be the name of our company. Uh, We would recover the fruits and vegetables that 
don't meet the retail standards of most grocery stores. And instead of allowing them to either rot in the fields, be tilled back under the soil, uh, maybe go to animal feed or to a processor, um, we purchase them directly from the farmers and we sell them directly to our customers online. Um, we, since we started off with produce, we've also ventured into the other types of food that, that people get at the grocery store, the dairy, the protein, the packaged goods. Um, there are stories of inefficiencies all over the food system, especially at the, at the retail level that, uh, you know, we just hate it. And we are insistent that all food deserves a home with our customers. Uh, and we are trying to do everything we can to make that a reality. And it is such a big, bold uh, mission or ambition, I guess. And a lot of the people we talk to on the podcast, Too Good to Waste, deals just with what you're talking about. So a lot of people see a lot of this waste going on. How did the idea start? Where did this actually, I mean, going right back to the very beginning, whose idea was it and how did it get off the ground to create imperfect foods? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's not anything new. This has been going on for decades in the food system in the U.S. It's just not something that is talked about very often. Most people, they go to the grocery store, they see the perfect apples and the perfect you know, cherries and carrots, and they assume that they all come out of the ground that way, which is not true. Uh, really, they come in all shapes and sizes, just like we do. Uh, and what ended up starting Imperfect was actually just our founder, Ben Simon, his exposure to the food recovery movement. You know, he saw food going to waste at his local campus dining hall uh, when he was in college at the University of Maryland. Uh, he just saw food being carted away to the garbage can at the end of every night uh, and just wanted to fix that. He couldn't believe that there was this good food going to waste when he knew that there were hungry people in his community. So he set up the Food Recovery Network, which is today in over, I want to say over 200 campuses around the U.S. Uh, and they're, what they do is simple. They take food that would have gone to waste at the dining halls and they have volunteers that bring it to people who are hungry. Um, and in the process of founding that nonprofit, uh, he got to meet a lot of people throughout the food system at all stages of the supply chain. And he met some people, uh, who told him, you got to look into this ugly produce stuff. I mean, it's just a shame. Oh, anyone who finds out about it is shocked that somehow up to 20 billion pounds per year, uh, of our produce that's grown on our farms never makes it off that farm. Um, so he caught wind of it and, and knew that he knew that he would eat it and he knew that a lot of his friends would eat it. And so he thought there must be a business model there. Uh, so he, he gave it a shot, set up a, just a table, um, to sell it to people at his college campus. And he got enough bites that he wanted to make a company out of it. Oh, that's cool. I, I want to make a distinction that you said, and I think it's something that maybe is a bit of a misconception that a lot of people have. And you were talking about setting up the food recovery network and the way he saw that. And this was food that was perfectly good food that had not gone into the garbage can or a dumpster yet, right? It's it's still very good, healthy, edible, safe food. And I think a lot of people hear food recovery or food waste and automatically assume, okay, is this stuff you're literally pulling out of a dumpster? But it's not, right? Nor is the stuff that Imperfect Foods is is selling, right? 
Absolutely not. No, we don't do dumpster diving, although we do have some employees that do that in their spare time, but that's for, for themselves, not for our customers. Well, there uh, is a sport of that. It, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. uh, no, we, so in the case of Food Recovery Network, it was cooked food that was, you know, made for college students to eat in their, mm-hmm. in their dining halls. Um, and in the case of Imperfect, it's just perfectly good, fresh fruits and vegetables that are grown uh, with the intention of selling them to customers. Um, you know, to the grocery stores that will sell them to customers, but they never make it there because they aren't the right shape or they aren't the right size, or they just grew too many and there's not enough in the market. So Ben gets this started then. And then how did you come into the picture? Uh, did you know him earlier? Or I mean, what was the connection there? So uh, Ben went to the same high school as me in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, he was about eight years older than me, but he uh, after he started the Food Recovery Network, he was invited to speak in one of my high school classes about what he was doing. Um, and, you know, we were all awestruck by this, this guy who had gone to our high school and was starting this really cool mission-driven nonprofit. Um, and I just, you know, really wanted to make a connection with him and, and reached out to him and, uh, after he, he left school and just said, I want to volunteer for you. I want to do something. I I just want to get involved with this. I know this is a huge problem. I'm really excited about being a part of the solution. Uh, and so he just kind of put me to work and we, we, I gained some of his trust over time doing some grant writing, uh, and some various types of volunteering. And, uh, eventually he decided that he was going to make a for-profit business out of it. And, uh, when he was, starting that the first iteration of the for-profit model, which was called Hungry Harvest, uh, he invited me to do a summer internship with them and kind of try to get the company off the ground, which ended up, you know, really mostly being going door to door, trying to sell subscriptions of ugly produce, which was something that no one had ever heard of at that point. I mean, I was knocking on doors and just, you know, it, it didn't make any sense to people. Um, but I, we started to get our very first bites pretty quickly. A lot of people would actually give us a credit card and sign up for a subscription of ugly fruits and vegetables uh, just when we showed up to their door. And when we saw that, we were like, all right, we're on to something here. I mean, that's the, tra- that is the, the, like you said, the traditional the down and dirty salesman going door, door to door, um, trying to get this thing off the ground. What were... I mean, I'm just curious, do you remember some of the comments you'd get from the people who weren't getting it? And then what the shift was? What I mean, obviously, you try different things, I'm guessing. And then what was it that actually started getting their attention and getting them to give you a credit card? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, with with uh, this business model, there's kind of something in it for everyone. So you have some people who uh, are really just health oriented, and those people are looking for fresh produce. And here, you know, we have it and it comes directly to your door. Can't be more convenient than that. Um, you have people who are really socially conscious and want to do their part to be able to help the environment. Uh, you can, you know, very easily show the association between all the inputs that it takes to grow a piece of produce and what a waste it is for that piece of produce not to actually get eaten. It's a waste of carbon. It's a waste of water. And then some people don't care about any of that stuff, but they do care about money and you can't get really cheaper produce than you can from 
a company like Hungry Harvest or from Imperfect Foods, where you're getting it for you know 30 or more percent off what a grocery store would pay for it. Yeah, so it sounds like you are hitting multiple needs depending on what the person has, you know, what their personal needs are. You can accommodate that in many different areas. When you started gaining some traction, uh, I mean, how long would it take? I'm just curious, literally knocking on a door and talking to somebody, how quickly were you able to sell them on this? Sometimes it would take, you know, 90 seconds and they'd be ready to, to buy. Um, other times, you know, we'd come in, sit down, it would take 20 minutes. We'd talk all about the food system and, and explain how this is possible. And then of course, a lot of times they would just slam the door in your face because they don't want to buy fruits and vegetables from a stranger. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely varied. Some people are like, oh, I had a feeling that this was going on. I, I knew that there must be ugly stuff going somewhere um, while other people really have to, you know, you have to open them up to it. And what, what was that like for you kind of being in on the ground floor, getting in really at a kind of an early stage of this and then getting that experience of door to door? How did that feel for you? It was great. I mean, it was really, it was hard. You know, we were doing it in the, the thick summer humidity of, of Maryland and, um, you know, you have to face a lot of rejection in the process of, of trying to sell people on something that you're really excited about. Uh, but yeah, the, the learnings that you get from selling something in person, not over, you know, digital marketing or, or um, any type of automated process, just actually talking to someone one-on-one -on -one and convincing them to buy it. There's no better way to get to know a business model and to uh, really reinforce your passion for something. So I assume you're not necessarily doing the door-to-door -door anymore now. How did it evolve into what it is today from the door-to-door -door stuff? Yeah, so uh, so Hungry Harvest, which was the, the Maryland one, continued to grow and, and is still in operation and doing well today, uh, still based out of Baltimore, Maryland. We're, we're close with the, the folks who were still running that company. Um, but after a couple of years... Uh, ben Simon, he was continuing to run the Food Recovery Network, and uh, he graduated from college and wanted to uh, kind of try it off on his own. And he went out to California because he knew that that was where uh, there was a lot of supply of fresh produce and that there was you know more going to waste there than anywhere on the East Coast that we were sourcing for Hungry Harvest. Um, and he knew that there were a lot of people who would get behind this idea, specifically in the Bay Area. So he uh, left Hungry Harvest behind in good hands and moved on to found Imperfect Produce um, with one of his uh, other co-founders from the Food Recovery Network. Uh, and the two of them, they moved out to uh, Emeryville, California, and, and you know shared a bedroom and started a, a company off of you know, really just their own personal savings of which there, there wasn't many, um, and, uh, started building and growing from there. And the, the rate of growth they found in the Bay area was just incredible compared to, um, what we found on the East coast, just the alignment and the, the folks were just ready for a business like this. Um, and so it, it, it grew really quickly and they, they got a lot of investments from, friends and family, as well as, you know, some of the early stage 
venture capital investors that really got us started. Were you a part of it at that time or, you know, you were interning and kind of volunteering originally and helping out back in Maryland. And then when it went out to California, did you go with it or did you come back into the company at a later point? So I stayed with, with Hungry Harvest up until I graduated high school. Um, and, uh, the same time that I was moving to California to start college, just coincidentally, I had, I, you know, wasn't trying to, to align that at all, but I, I went to UC Berkeley and, uh, right at the same time that Ben Simon moved out there to start Imperfect. So I, I definitely stayed involved in both companies, but I, I wasn't actively employed, uh, with either of them, except for during the summers when I was looking for internships. But uh, that didn't last too long because after my, right when I finished my sophomore year, I just kind of out of the blue got a text from Ben Simon saying, hey, we just raised our, our Series A round and I'm looking for an assistant. You should, uh, you should drop out of school <laughs> and start working for me. Wow. And I was like, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I, I, you know, I'm getting a degree from a school that I really like and, um, but sure enough, three weeks later, I just couldn't think of a real reason why I wouldn't give it a shot. You know, it was a company I was extremely passionate about that I knew I wanted to work for. Um, and here I had the opportunity to go all in. Um, and I took it. Wow. That, that is an amazing story. And it's a huge leap of faith. Uh, how long ago was that? That was three years ago. Okay. So in three years, uh, you, any regrets? No, I do not have any regrets. I am, um, I'm really glad that I did it. I mean, I, I have just learned such a tremendous amount from being part of that early stage team and seeing a company go through all these stages of growth. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it feels like I'm, you know, working with a, a different company every day, uh, just because you it's growing so quickly and we have so many new people all the time. Um, but no, I, I do not have, have any regrets. I think that I. I place a lot of value in, in education, but I, uh, for me, I think I learned more uh, with the startup experience than I would have finishing up school. Yeah, kind of the uh, school of life type concept. And it's not, that is obviously a very unconventional path. Not a lot of people have the courage in, to do that. So I commend you for taking that leap of faith and, and going for something. And it also, I think it goes back to what you were saying before, there was something driving you when you were in high school to follow this passion and you had exposure to it. So you kind of knew, you knew where you were going, but there were, I'm sure there were still a lot of unknowns. So now you're, you leave Berkeley and you are jumping right into Imperfect Foods. Tell me a little bit about what, you know, what was going on? What were you doing and how involved you're now, your title is chief of staff. Um, how did you get that title and what does that involve? What do you do? Yeah, it did not start out that way. Uh, when I was hired, I was just given the, the position of executive assistant, which is uh, typically a pretty administrative uh, role, directly supporting an executive. For me, it was it was Ben, the CEO. Um, so you know, I was managing his his calendar and making sure that lunch was ordered for all the big investor meetings. And you know, I, I uh, it, it was a a, a pretty at its, at its base, it was a pretty administrative role. Um, but that wasn't really why Ben hired me. It was, he knew that I, uh, was really passionate about this and that I, I had skills to be able to contribute, um, beyond just, you know, being organized and administrative. So I just kind of 
took every chance I could to take on additional responsibilities. Uh, you know, we, we decided we, we outgrew our very small office space and we needed to get a new one. And Ben said, man, there's no one to lead this process and, and build out our new office. And I said, oh, I can do that. And of course I couldn't do that. I knew nothing about building out a space and uh, was incredibly naive. And the, you know, the, the contractors that were putting together all of our, our furniture and, and putting in the walls and electricity knew they could totally, uh, you know, take advantage of me. And, and there were a lot of learning points there, but um, I was excited and wanted to learn everything I could. And uh, through projects like that, I was able to, you know, build up and, and show that I was capable of um, doing more than, than my role really had specified as the assistant. And uh, eventually, I was spending a lot more of my time on sort of independent projects and uh, strategy for the company. And uh, it just became pretty clear that my, my role had evolved and we promoted me to, to what it is now, which is chief of staff. That's great. What... Um... Tell me, let's get into a little bit of the kind of logistics and uh, specifics about Imperfect Foods. And I know you kind of, we introduced it at the beginning, um, but tell me a little bit about like you're in the Bay Area, where else uh, are you serving? Have you grown outside of the Bay Area? And then what, you know, kind of what's the process? Where does the food come from? What are you putting in the boxes and how do people get it? And what's the model going right now? Yeah, so when I joined Imperfect in July, 2017, we were in two markets. It was the San Francisco Bay Area and in Los Angeles. We had just launched Los Angeles a few months before I got there. Um, since then, in the past three years, we've expanded to over 30 different cities across the U.S. Wow. Um, and we're actually now serving uh, over 70. We're available to serve over 70% of the population. So what used to be we were only available to a very small group of people in the Bay Area. We have uh, built out our operational footprint just tremendously. And we owe huge credit to the operations team that has gotten us there. They have launched so many new facilities and set up so many new uh, supply chain partnerships uh, with new growers and distributors uh, to be able to supply all that, um, all that food. Uh, in addition to serving a lot more of the US and, and kind of going from coast to coast, we also have added a lot more to our catalog so when, when we started, and even for the first year and a half of the company, you could only get produce and you couldn't even pick what that produce would be. It would just be kind of like a, a CSA. Some people know about those, mm -hmm. um, but you would just get a random assortment of whatever we found that week that we wanted to put in your box. Um, that works for some people. That does not work for everybody. A lot, most people need to be a little more selective about what they are uh eating and what they're cooking with. And so we added the feature of being able to customize exactly what you would get every week and pick from our catalog. Uh, additionally, we got a lot of feedback that, you know, I love the produce and it's great, but what's the point in, in getting this delivery if I still have to go to the grocery store to get my eggs, milk, mm -hmm. protein, um, you know, I, and my snacks. I have, there's a lot of other stuff I need beyond just, just the produce. Uh, can you sell me that stuff? And we said, well, sure, I guess so. And, and so we, um, for every thing that we could, we found opportunities to recover food. Uh, you know, we, I'll give a, an example of uh, our Atlantic salmon 
it uh, where it comes from is just the leftover pieces after your uh, after someone actually makes like a one pound salmon. Salmon don't come in exactly one pound. They you get a little bit on the front, a little bit on the back, and you put enough of those together, and you have a pound. It's a pound of salmon either way. It's just not you know the one continuous fish. Right. Um, but we found a lot of our customers don't mind that at all, and if they can get it for you know two dollars cheaper per pound for fantastic salmon, then then they're all for it. Um, so we found as many opportunities like that as we could, and in addition to that, we just have some products that. Our, none of it really goes to waste, but our customers still want it. And so we're happy to provide it to them if it allows them to continue using us as their grocer and being able to recover food for all of the parts of their diet they can. So as your model has kind of evolved and shifted and um, met the consumer demand and the feedback that you're getting, one thought that comes to my mind is, in the early stages where they were getting a box of produce and it was like you said, similar to a CSA, it's whatever you were able to get. Now they're able to select specific things. Does that end up, how does that work for the kind of the food that you get through the various supply chains and providers that you have? And if people are more interested in a particular type of food, do you end up with surplus yourself that doesn't go into these boxes? And if so, what do you do with that? So one of the benefits of our model uh, that is a reason that we're able to waste significantly less food than a conventional grocery store is that we are ordering from the farmer and from the distributor based on what you order as a customer. So you four days before uh, we deliver you your box, you are able to tell us exactly what you want. And then we are managing our orders with with our suppliers based on that. So there is very little uh, additional surplus built into the system. Uh, and for the most part, we are ordering exactly what our customers want. We have no need to have large surpluses on hand in our warehouses that end up going to waste. We manage really tight inventory and uh, we lose no more than 1% of our product and that's and that's a bad week um and by lose i we obviously we're very careful about what we do with with that product that we're not able to sell for whatever reason and it goes to our food bank partners if it's up to that quality if it isn't then it'll get composted rather than thrown away so that's obviously very important to us but no we are able to really keep that shrink down to an absolute minimum yeah, that's great. And it's neat to hear how you continue to do that as it as your company evolves. And as you evolve and you start adding more and more to these boxes so that people can get, you know, reduce the number of trips to the store and get more of what they need in a particular box, how hard has that been for you to be able to really uh, source the different things? And what are some of the, the things, like you mentioned, eggs and milk? I mean, are there things that are harder for you to source to try to meet the demands of the of the general public or the consumers that are using this? Uh, yeah, it definitely varies. There are certain products that are a lot more difficult than others. Uh, we have a really dedicated, incredible team of buyers across our produce and our grocery uh, departments, and they just find these incredible deals and opportunities to recover food uh, that most people wouldn't think of. You know, they they are are really connected and, um, you know, they, they just ask themselves questions like, 
you know, what might be happening to this product. You know, we, we have one of our new ones is the chocolate covered pretzels. They are absolutely delicious, uh, but they are not shaped like pretzels for the most part. They are the bits and pieces that break off when chocolate covered pretzels are being made. And, uh, you know, they taste exactly the same, but they just don't have that perfect pretzel shape. Um, and we put them all in a bag with our own label on it. And it's like one of our most popular snacks. And everywhere you look in the food system, you, you uncover things like this. And we owe a lot to our, our buyers for discovering those. Well, and that's neat because I don't know if there's anyone else out there like me, but quite honestly, I like the bits of the pretzels at the bottom of the bag anyway, you know? <laughs> so. Well, you should, uh, you should try our snacks. Uh, yeah, I definitely will. Yeah, I, I'm imagining I'm not alone in that. That's, that's one of those funny things. And that actually probably speaks to why they're so popular because it's kind of like, yeah, this is the fun part. Get to the bottom and then just eat the little scraps off the bottom. Uh, makes that kind of neat. Yeah. You know, you would, you'd be surprised how often we get that feedback, uh, that I like this better anyway. Yeah. Like, why does the grocery store want it the other way? You know, we, we have, usually really small onions that we sell that are, are below the, the spec for a, you know, a grade A onion in the grocery store. Um, and people are always telling me like, why do they sell onions in the size that they do? I can't use that. I cook for myself. There's no way that I can use this whole onion. It goes in the fridge and then it goes bad. Um, so, you know, really having a little bit more variety and not so much, uh, you know, identical uh, specifications I think goes to benefit a lot of our customers. As this company has grown and you, as you mentioned, and I've watched your company grow as well, um, anytime something is growing rapidly, there's always challenges. There's opportunities, but there's challenges with that. And I follow you on Instagram and I've seen it. I have to give you a lot of credit. Uh, whoever's running your social media is doing a phenomenal job of addressing comments and people out there. Um, but what has that been like as you're growing? I mean, what are some of the growing pains that you've encountered and how have you overcome some of those? Yeah. So in terms of pure growing pains, we've definitely felt the challenge of demand growing faster than we can meet it. Uh, we especially saw that recently during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but it's happened a lot of times throughout our history as a company, you know, when we launch a new market or whatever it might be, uh, it is not easy in such a capital intensive and labor intensive model to scale up as quickly as sometimes you want to. A lot of startups, especially, you know, the, the technology startups that most of our investors are used to, they're just digital products. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make as many copies of, you know, Zoom as an application as you want, for example. And there's, there's nothing really holding you back other than you know more storage in a data center. Uh, that's not the case for Imperfect. You have to have the space to be able to put all the inventory. Right. You need enough people to uh, be able to pack all of the boxes. You need enough drivers to deliver all the boxes. You need enough people to prepare the, the fresh produce and make sure that all of it is good before it goes into our customers, you know, our customers' boxes. We take that quality control really seriously. Uh, so scaling up has to be done carefully and demand doesn't always come carefully. So that has definitely been a, a challenge we've run into repeatedly, but it's one that we have always been able to overcome eventually. Uh, occasionally people just have to wait a little bit longer than they like to, to get their first box. Um, in addition to that, we've of course had our, our challenges before with 
just not delivering the quality of service that we'd like. You know, we hold ourselves to a really high standard. We, uh, we're not selling rotten, bruised, dumpster produce as, as some people uh, guess that we are. Um, we mean it when we say that this stuff is just as good as what you get in the grocery store. And we take it really seriously when we're not able to meet that promise. So, you know, occasionally something will get through and a, a customer won't be happy with the, the quality of, especially a piece of produce on the other end. And, you know, we, we do everything we can to, to make that right. And, and we've been able to get the, the rate of that happening down to almost nothing. But that, and then, you know, the, just the challenge of doing direct to home delivery, uh, it's just a lot of logistics that have to go right. Um, and so you have to really be pursuing perfection, ironically, because we're in perfect foods. But uh, yeah, that, that can be challenging to do even when you're at a steady state and especially when you're growing as fast as we have. Yeah. And just to set the context, you mentioned the COVID crisis. Here we are in early July of 2020, and it is by no means over. We're all still feeling the impacts of it. What how what was the impact of that? You mentioned it just briefly that there were some, but uh, I mean, how did your company respond to that? And what were some of the maybe the unexpected little pivots that you needed to do to accommodate that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when when the shelter in place orders first happened and the very first one that happened was in San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, we sort of got our first exposure to like, oh, wow, this actually uh, is going to really increase the demand for Imperfect. We were all of a sudden, um, you know, we completely turned off our marketing spend. We were no longer placing ads on on any of the digital platforms where we normally push them. Wow. Uh, and we were still getting thousands of new customer signups a day just from word of mouth because these, I mean, the grocery stores, one, they were out of stock of a lot of the things that people needed because we had so much panic buying going on. Uh, and people were being encouraged not to leave their houses, even for the most essential things. And so uh, it really accelerated an interest in online grocery that we've always kind of known was coming, uh, the same as every other direct-to-consumer product has shifted largely online. You know, the research has shown for a long time that, that grocery is going to go the same way, but this kind of forced it to the, the front of people's minds really suddenly uh, and out of necessity. So we got a lot of new customer signups and the customers that we did have were suddenly ordering way more than they normally would and way more frequently than they normally would. Um, uh, and the, the sum of all of that was just, you know, us trying to pack four times as much food into, uh, out of our pack centers two months after the start of the year when, uh, when this happened. So, uh, it really had a, a severe impact on our, on our demand. Um, one that, you know, we, we are proud to be able to fill and to be able to, to fill that need, uh, when there weren't that many other options. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a big deal for us. Well, and I can imagine too, because the behind the scenes, uh, aspect of it, as you mentioned, okay, now you're trying to fill four times as many boxes, but yet you, even as an essential business, have to put certain protective measures in place with your staff, I would imagine. Did, did that become a little bit of a player too, as far as how you can even keep your, your, you know, your packing staff working in the environment that you had? Did you have to make some adjustments to that? 
Of course. Yeah. Everything about how we were used to operating had to be looked at really carefully and, and optimized to, uh, to keep our employees healthy and safe. Our employees were continued to be really motivated to come to work. They knew that, uh, what they were doing was, you know, making it possible for people at risk, elderly people to not have to leave their house to go to the grocery store. Uh, and that was a huge motivator for our teams. But yeah, we needed to take some some very serious precautions, both to keep our employees safe and to keep our customers safe. You know, we started doing temperature checks uh, anytime someone comes into work. Uh, we increased the um, available sick leave for our for our employees to uh, make sure that no one felt pressured to come in when they weren't feeling well. And uh, yeah, I, we you know mandatory hand washing and gloves and masks and you know, all of the recommend, recommended personal protective equipment uh, that we depend on to be able to, you know, go outside and not get sick. We, we were operationalizing in our, in our facilities and we had to do it quick because this all came on, as you know, really suddenly. Uh, no one really had a lot of time to prepare and we were trying to do it at the same time as hiring, you know, hundreds of new employees and uh, bringing on tens of thousands of new customers all at once. Yeah. I, and that's why I wanted to really touch on that a little bit, because I think it's so important that people understand how difficult it was, but how well you all rose to the challenge to meet it, because you're, you're really trying to provide a, an essential and a very important and valuable service. But yet there's a lot of things you all were having to do behind the scenes that I think a lot of people may not fully understand or appreciate. So again, I, I give you a lot of credit um, for doing all that you've done. And in the midst of a rapid growth uh, phase in general, now to add this layer onto it, I'm guessing you've learned a lot through what you've done and, and who knows how long this is going to last and what the, you know, what the future is going to hold for the, the different protocols that we have to deal with. Um, so I wanted to touch on one other thing too about your company, because not only are you rapidly growing, you're meeting the demand, you're dealing with this COVID stuff, but you also, <clears throat> on your website, I was reading about partnering with Imperfect Foods. And on that section of your website, you talk about um, really many different ways that you are benefiting communities all across the country. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit, just kind of touch on that a little bit, uh, because I think not only are you building your for-profit business, but you're also really doing such great work in other areas. And I'd like to just share that a little bit. Yeah. So this is uh, the, the second half of the mission statement that you were bringing up at the beginning of our interview, which is, you know, we don't just want to eliminate food waste. We also want to build a better food system for everyone. And, uh, that is a that's a vague statement, and and we we understand that. Um, and what it looks like right now is uh, that we want to increase food security. Uh, so, one thing that we've done since the very beginning of our company is to offer a reduced cost box for customers who are low income. So, uh, one of the federal programs that a lot of low income households depend on is SNAP, otherwise known as food stamps. Um, if your income falls under a certain threshold, then you get these, uh, you know, you get, you get basically a, a debit card. It's called an EBT card that you can use to buy uh, food. 
Um, and that is not something that online retailers have ever been allowed to accept. Just purely technological limitations by the USDA. Uh, it's one of those things that's been promised for years and years and years, but it's just taken a really long time to hammer out. Um, we knew that going in, and but we didn't want people who couldn't afford food to uh, not be able to get our product. So we just sell to anyone who who is below a certain that same income threshold. Uh, we sell it at cost, so or even a little bit below cost. In, in all honesty, um, just to, to try to take our, our low prices and make them even more affordable. So typically, you're looking at about half the price of what it would be in a grocery store. Um, you know, we still are, are hoping to be able to accept SNAP, which that in combination with our reduced cost box program could really um, accelerate the impact we're able to make on food security. But we believe that we are uh, uniquely equipped to be able to address it because of our delivery model in addition to uh, our price point. You know, we there are a lot of people who depend on on SNAP, but also aren't able to get to a grocery store. You know, we have uh, still a large part of the US that is that lives in what's called a food desert, which means that you're more than one mile uh, or walking distance from your nearest grocery store. even in our big cities, you know, in the in, in Chicago, for example, there are tons and tons of households that have uh, no means of getting fresh fruit and vegetables, and the um, you know the the repercussions of that are are huge, and it's not fair. Uh, and so that's that's something that we think we're able to address with our our delivery model and our price point uh, to be able to really increase the food security in the U.S. Yeah, that's uh, it's so admirable. I, I really love that about your company and how, like you said, you're just by nature of what you do in providing the food boxes, uh, you know, and all that, you're accomplishing something amazing. And then, like you said, to take it to another layer and really doing it, covering both ends of the spectrum as far as uh, from a food waste standpoint, from a, an environmental standpoint, but yet then also from a food security standpoint, you're really touching all of those areas. Um, so I think that's great. And I think that's a, such a great model to inspire other companies to, to really strive for and uh, keep doing, you know, try to do the types of things that you all are doing. So what's the future hold? What's kind of, obviously you're growing fast. It's only been three years and you now, I, I, I want to go back to a number. You said something about how many people can actually, what percentage of the population can actually um, take advantage of your services right now? And where does, where do you go from there? Yeah. So we are, are currently available to 74% of the U.S. population through a combination of our own delivery network, uh, which which is what most of our customers are on. Um, and we also supplement that with uh, the common carrier like FedEx uh, that, that does some of our distribution to the more more distant uh, areas that aren't as close to the, the big cities. Um, so we still have a lot more work to do on, on building out our delivery network. We want uh, to be able to serve as many customers as possible with our own uh, delivery. Uh, that's that's important to us because it's the most um, affordable for the customer and it's the most carbon efficient for us uh, to be able to do all of our distribution in the most optimized way possible. So you don't have everybody getting in their car and driving to the grocery store. Instead, you just have one 
imperfect van coming and, and dropping off all along your neighborhood. Uh, that's, that's something that we're really excited about and we want to continue to build uh, across the U.S. Uh, in addition to that, we, are, we have a lot more work to do on refining our assortment. Uh, you know, we, right now we have about 250 to 300 items available in any given market. Um, if you go to your local Safeway, uh, you'll see, you know, tens of thousands of items available. Uh, you know, you'll probably find 10 peanut butters and 15 ranch dressings. And we don't want to be like that by any means, but we do want to make sure that we do have one peanut butter and one ranch dressing um, to cover all of the you know, dietary needs of our customers. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more work to do there. We have, have, like you said, it can be a challenge to find the, uh, the suppliers for all of the different products, but that's a, you know, an effort that we're going through now. Um, and, you know, we just want to continue to grow and get more customers in the cities that we already serve. We believe that we have a unique offering here and that it is something that can appeal to anyone who buys groceries and, and cooks food, which is, you know, just about everyone. Uh, and we want to get out there and continue to tell our story and leverage that growth to be able to recover as much food as possible and to continue to further our mission. Well, we'll certainly do everything we can to target our podcast to that other 26% and try to get you up to a hundred percent. Yeah, it's really quite an accomplishment to see how quickly you all have really expanded to serve such a large percentage of the population with your services. I think that's fantastic. And what's the best way for somebody to find out if your services are available in their community right now? Yeah, so they would go to imperfectfoods.com and just click the sign up button in the top right. And first thing we'll ask you for is your zip code and we'll, we'll let you know uh, whether or not we can serve you. And speaking of your website, I have to say, I really like the website. There's a lot of great information and the infographics on it are just like you talked about educating people and helping us understand what is it and, and demystifying some of these perceptions that people may have about ugly fruit or seconds or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I, I, again, I, I like what I see on there and I'm sure other people, obviously other people do as well because you're growing and you're, you're getting a good number of signups. So hopefully more and more people will go check out your website. Well, I've got to ask you this. This is the, I, I was chuckling the other day because I was on YouTube and I'm doing a little research and, you know, getting ready for this interview. What is up with unboxing the imperfect foods box on YouTube. I am just blown away. I see people who all they're doing is unboxing the box and they've got 70,000 views. W- where did that come from? I, it, we are far from the, the first ones to get that going. The unboxing trend is, I think, the, the defining feature of, um, you know, e-commerce in this past decade. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, you will see people unboxing absolutely everything and people just can't get enough of it. I think it's just you know, people want to be able to try before they buy. And uh, one great way to do that is to watch someone else who already bought uh, and see exactly what that is like. I mean, we, we try to craft uh, what we do around just creating a really delightful experience when you actually, you know, cut open that tape and open your box for the first time and you see all these beautiful pieces of, of fruits and vegetables and, and other groceries. 
Uh, and I mean, we, we love seeing the people who want to share that online. Uh, you know, some of them love it. Some of them don't love it as much. And we, we take that feedback really seriously, but, uh, yeah, we, we, we love seeing how much that has, uh, expanded on YouTube. Yeah, that's such a cool, almost kind of an unintentional marketing strategy that you have going for you. And people seem to really enjoy it. I've watched several of them and I get a kick out of watching them as well. And even like you said, when maybe something isn't quite what they expected, you all are doing such a great job, I think, of responding to that and using it as feedback and then addressing it and making it right. So keep doing what you're doing. I think that's fantastic. And again, you know, it's kind of the concept of try it before you buy it. But I think probably a better way to do that is just go to your website, imperfectfoods.com and and sign up and try it there. That's probably the easiest and most effective way. Um, so, Wes, what other ways can people find you, find out more about Imperfect Foods on different social media platforms? Uh, yeah, we are, our pride and joy is our Instagram page. So if you have any interest in uh, unsolicited tips on how to best store and, and cook your, your food, uh, definitely follow us there or for just pictures of of fruits and vegetables with googly eyes on them. Um, we, we get a lot of good feedback there. So that's the first place I would send people to Instagram imperfect foods. And are you also on, uh, I can't remember. Are you on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn? Yep. Facebook, Twitter, imperfect foods, uh, is the, the handle for everything. Okay, fantastic. Well, we will have all of those links and some of those googly eye fruit pictures and vegetable pictures in the show notes on toogoodtowastepodcast.com as well. Wes, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I wish you all the best with the company. Uh, I think you're doing great work. So keep doing what you're doing and uh, look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks for being on the show today. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Well, I can say that as well. It was definitely a blast, and we'll call this one our imperfect episode on the Too Good to Waste series. Always enjoy talking to Wes and learning from him, and I hope you did as well. Lots of good information about imperfect foods. And the thing that really impressed me among the many is how they're so deeply involved with different community organizations and partnering with them and really committed to not only reducing food waste, saving food, and also getting it out to the communities and to all of us who really appreciate that. Hey, and if you're enjoying these podcast episodes, by all means, let us know and let your friends know by sharing it. And you can also help us out by giving us five stars or a thumbs up, whatever works for you. We really appreciate that. You can follow us on Instagram at too good to waste underscore podcast. Special thanks going out to Sue Marshall for her help with creative development and to Amy Gilbert, our associate producer and resident upcycled food baker. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Net Zero. You can find them on the web at netzero.us and the Upcycled Food Association at upcycledfood.org. Too good to waste, absolutely.